Welcome to The Ramp Up, the podcast that tells the inspiring stories of the thought leaders, founders, and experts behind the leveraged loan and structured credit markets. I'm your host and CEO of Octora, Brian Vigile. Together, we'll uncover what it takes to ramp up a market, turn the tide, and really shake things up. How do you migrate an idea into a thriving business? Let's find out. Today's guest is Tom Majewski, founder and managing partner at Eagle Point Credit. Tom has been at the center of some of the most impactful innovations in the CLO market. From executing one of the earliest known CLO equity trades to starting one of the first CLO equity funds, he has had an incredible career. We'll talk about all of that and more. Enjoy the conversation. Tom, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Great, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. Maybe a good place to start is, I know you grew up in the Hudson Valley. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about high school. Let's talk about your path to Binghamton. Let's bring back some old old memories. <laughs> um, I guess I did grow up in the Hudson Valley, up in New Paltz and Kingston back in the 80s when that was almost America's Silicon Valley. Hmm. A lot of people forget that's where the first IBM PCs were made and used to be able to value real estate by its proximity to the IBM factories. Uh, sadly, over time, those businesses sold off ultimately to Lenovo and, and those jobs lost. And, and frankly, it was a depressed period up there for a while, um, but they've had a real nice renaissance. It was certainly a warm spot that I, I think fondly of in high school. I had the misfortune or fortune of having my mother be the principal at a junior high school in the school district I went to, including my junior high school. So you can picture the seventh grade dance with mom standing in the corner. That was a little <laughs> awkward. But I had the advantage of knowing all the teachers Ooh. from growing up. You know, once your family's in the education business, everyone kind of knows each other. And it was a, a charming, small-town way to grow up. I ended up going to Binghamton after my junior year of high school while I was not particularly smart from a grades perspective. My mother, who was in the education business, suggested that maybe I had kind of outgrown the benefit I was going to get from high school. And on a lark over Christmas break, I remember in probably 1990, I applied to college. I didn't really do a lot of research. There were no websites or anything. Yeah. I'm sure I called and they mailed me a brochure or something in those days. And I was fortunate enough to get into Binghamton, which is probably all I could afford. And also the only school that still hadn't closed their application deadline that I was remotely interested in. So very lucky to have gone there, a great experience. A lot of accounting-oriented classes. I left there with an accounting degree, and that was something you could do really well with, frankly, in those days. Back then it was, I think, the big eight or maybe down to the big six. We're now down to the big four, maybe getting smaller, who knows? But it was very fortunate to get into that program, get a degree from there. And when I went into the accounting world, I had a very lucky break. Typically, if you're an auditor, you're going to be working with a controller at a company at a fund, or we had a big practice covering consumer products. People would have to go count inventory on New Year's Day and all those, all those kind of things, obviously checking for empty yeah. boxes and whatnot, hopefully. <laughs> um, we didn't really have that kind of year-end deadline in financial markets, which was nice. I had an edge over the 100 people or so in my starting class up at Arthur Anderson of I could amortize a loan in Lotus 123. And that was apparently a very rare skill in that day. And on the first day in the office, they went around and sent people to different assignments. You go to Solomon, you go here, you go there. 
and they skipped over me. Ooh. And I had a little gulp, like, uh-oh, what did I do? Um, and they said, oh, you have a very strong interest in securitization. I see you're good at spreadsheets. Come with us. And they brought me to a securitization modeling group where we're tying out and auditing uh, auto securitizations, original subprime mortgage securitizations, checking the collateral information, running, amortizing a model with 8,000 mortgages, and which is Lotus only had 8,000 lines in it, yeah. you may recall. And it was a fascinating way to learn about securitization, going and looking at loan files and doing due diligence on commercial real estate loans, on residential mortgage loans. Back when subprime mortgages had 18% interest mm -hmm. rates, you could have 10% losses each year and still make an 8% profit on a, on a portfolio like that. But I got to see the real nuts and bolts of it. Yeah. Um, was very fortunate. Instead of my clients being the accounting comp function at companies, our clients were the investment bankers arranging the deals. And that's what led to many cases when you leave an accounting firm, you go to work at one of your clients. And my clients, thankfully, were people sitting on the trading desks at large banks, and I was fortunate enough to get a job into banking out of Anderson, which was yeah. an unusual move. All the people I know in securitized finance who have been in this business for more than 20 years, like you and me, no one raised their hand to say, I need to be in this market. We all accidentally came into this business, and that's a, a constant theme. Definitely. So at what point do you then switch to uh, the banking side of uh, securitization? So this was around the year 2000, give or take, right into I joined into the Chase J.P. Morgan merger. When I was working at Anderson, one of the other things we worked on were CLOs. And there were a handful of these getting done each yeah. year. There weren't too many. It was kind of a little sidecar thing. Once in yeah. a while, the bankers were called, oh, sure, we could figure out how to do this. And the one thing I noticed that was very different, whereas with the mortgage securitizations particularly, where we were, it was very collateral focused. And if you remember a CMBS securitization, the prospectus had a thing that folds out with every attribute of every loan, and we had to go check every loan document. In CLOs, there was none of that. And I remember asking one of the bankers, a good friend of mine still, a fellow, Mario Verna, why is there no information about the loans? And he said, well, the loans change fascinating. Yeah. And that piqued my attention. And back then, CLOs had what was called a replenishment period. Yep. What collateral managers knew that no one else really appreciated, while these are typically seven and eight-year loans, they pay off prior to seven or eight years, typically about three years. Whereas mortgage people talk about speeds all day long. And if you do a mortgage founder discussion, speed, speed, speeds. In loans, everyone talks about the default rate. Mm -hmm. The prepayment rate, in my opinion, is far more important. Mm -hmm. But what that gave rise to were back then, you know, bankers did four or five deals a year, a collateral manager did one a year. They wanted to keep it alive as long as possible. You do all this work, and then if it just amortized down in two or three years, well, that seems like a waste. So they were able to convince the rating agencies, as long as the loan, if a B1 loan paid off, or you replaced it with a new B1 or better, things like that, you could maintain or improve the portfolio with replenishment. And what that ultimately led to is this trillion dollar market today that's laughable if you describe it in that we have 12 year non-mark to market, 10 times levered financing on a pool revolving traded dynamic pool of markable investments where the marks don't really matter on performing collateral as it relates to the continuation of the financing. You can keep taking dividends out even if you're underwater. That doesn't exist in any other form. And if you were to call a bank and say, I'd like to get that kind of financing, they, they'd laugh at you. Yep. Yet we have a trillion dollars of it in our market. 
And what piqued my attention to the CLO market was that loans were certainly still a nascent yep. asset class, but the financing in these CLOs was just different than anything else in the market. And I remember talking to some of my friends, this mm. is what's in these deals. And they would say, oh, you must be missing something. There must yeah. be some other provision or something you don't understand. I said, no, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I, thankfully, I was right. Yeah. But it, it was something that stood out to me as different than anything else. And this was back when the CLO market was probably a 10 or $20 billion market. Today, it's, you know, give or take a trillion. I don't think anybody could have projected back in 2000, 2001, your point that we would be, you know, today, a trillion dollar market, right? And you've suddenly seen this evolution. You are JP Morgan Chase now. And so uh, walk us through, I know you've been through a few shops on the sell side. Just walk us through that kind of career transitions across the different shops. Sure. But one of the things, everything I just described relates to cash flow CLOs. Yes. You probably traded one or two of these in your day. Market value CLOs. I remember those. Oh, uh, yes. Um, <laughs> uh, they, those often ended with a less happy ending. There's a few exceptions to mm -hmm. them. In the 1990s, and then again in the 2005, 6, 7 period, there was a small number of CLOs done that had market value-based triggers instead of PAR and cash flow-based triggers. The advantage of these CLOs there was far more flexibility. The collateral restrictions were much more loose compared mm -hmm. to a cash flow CLO. Collateral manager said they had more flexibility. But the biggest risk of leverage is that you have to put in more money or sell mm -hmm. assets when things are down. And these all had these provisions. Old Chase Securities had come up with a program in 1996 called CSLT, the Chase Secured Loan Trusts, oh. which was a synthetic market value CLO mm -hmm. from 1996. Those things don't all go together. Yeah. I think it turned out to be the case. And, and the bank um, was very successful, it was a very innovative product. And the bank kept the senior risk, the top, the 20 to 100 tranche. Um, obviously, banks don't really yep. do too much of that today, I guess a little bit. But that built up to the bank having over $10 billion of exposure to the senior part yep. of these market value CLOs, just as we were going into the, the technology and then terrorism-driven credit cycle yep. between 2000 and 2002. So I was brought in to help unwind that program. And the message was very clear, get us out of the senior risk, don't take any losses, and many clients involved were some of the largest and most prestigious insurance companies don't get a call to the chairman. Okay, as things were tough in banking and loans were defaulting and cuts and layoffs were widespread and on Wall Street, it was very secure employment at a minimum. Every day loans went down a little further and another company defaulted, my job got a little more important. But our pitch to the equity investors in these CLOs was, in these market value CLOs, why don't we pay off your market value financing pay us off at par, and then let's issue a new cash flow CLO where you don't have to worry about these market-to-market -market triggers mm -hmm. anymore. And we got a number of these CLOs done in the early part of the 2000s in the depth of the crisis. We had them wrapped on the cover by monoline insurers and you know, some of the greatest hits names from that part of the market. But we were successful at getting the bank out of the risk. Mm -hmm. For many investors, they converted some elected to liquidate, in some cases at the bottom, as you know, big institutional investors sometimes do as well. But it was a great way to learn about CLOs in the depths of a market when you're helping to clean up a problem, not just starting with a rosy, clean sheet of paper. And you know, the, there's a theme in there. You talked about, in passing, 
monoline insurance, right? The migration of the market from a market value base. I remember those. You know, the market value triggers rigged a lot of havoc in the spaces. And then, you know, there's another one which was CBOs. Remember the loans and you know bond portfolios. Uh, given that we're coming out of the telecom crisis with a lot of bond issuers in that space, and I think this just speaks to the ability of our market to evolve and innovate. Today, it's in a very different structural place. And I know you're going to talk about it when we get to our eager point. You're very successful at managing the the, the bank's books, getting them out of market value CLOs, turning them out into uh, what now looks like today's CLOs, right? What did you do next? So as we wrapped up that program and loans started going up, everyone started breathing a little easier. And through some fortunate turn of events, I was able to move into the new issue CLO business and jointly ran the new CLO platform at JP Morgan with a colleague for a number of years. And it was in many cases working with the same people I had just worked with, helping unwind their prior CLOs. But one of the things that we had in that old CSLT program, which was very unusual, in many cases, there was just a single equity investor. Often, and the equity had a particular rating from Fitch that made it attractive for insurance companies. But it was very interesting in that these investors owned this CSLT equity in their fixed income portfolio. It had a rating on it, but it had equity-like triggers and controls. And none of them really thought about this before because it was the person who ran the bond portfolio who owned it. We were fortunate, I kind of remember in 2002, 2003, a large insurance company in Connecticut called up our secondary trading desk and said, hey, I've got this old securitization. I think it's a CLO or CBO. I've got the equity tranche, but I want to sell it before year end. And really wasn't a lot of equity trading then. Debt traded kind of by appointment. Equity was almost unheard of. So we said, well, thank you. Give us a day or two. Let's see if we can put a number on it for you. There's no concept of a BWIC or pulling up Intex. We called the loan desk, and they marked all the loans for us. And with a you know, spreadsheet, we were on Excel at this point. How long did that take? It took two to three days. <laughs> and we calculated the NAV was around 60 cents on the dollar. So we bid the guy about 40. I may be slightly off on the numbers, but directionally accurate. Mm-hmm. And the guy said, you can close by the end of the year? Yes. Great. We have a trade. That might have been the first equity trade. That might have been. <laughs> so now all of a sudden we own $10 million of equity in a deal at a significant discount to NAB. It was outside the non-call period. Like, oh, this is interesting. And we started calling around to other holders, would you be willing to sell? And we told them we were trying to build a position in the deal and things like that. We were very, you know, tried to be reasonably transparent. People were surprised. No one ever got an unsolicited inbound seeking to buy CLO equity off their balance sheet. Invariably, the prior person bought it. You took over the seat. Uh You're at XYZ, institutional investor. I got a bid from JP Morgan. I'll just take it. It's fine. Credit's still pretty dodgy at this point, even though the worst was behind us. And we built up the majority or super majority, which was required in that CLO. It was Sequels Minx 4. It's a 1998 vintage CLO. And all of a sudden, we were now the controlling investor of the equity class, the Minx class, as it was called at the time. And we put in a call notice. And we knew what was going to happen. We had, the, yeah. we had this all pre-rehearsed. The collateral manager called us up and said, what are you doing? This is your calling our deal. We have a relationship yeah. with the bank. I said, why don't we just do a new deal with those same assets? Well, that's a great idea, he said. And what started, I knew it started as a little bit of a hostile call. You know, one likes to get a get a, un, a surprise call notice to 
we're going to have a new business right. opportunity together. So this was obviously before you know, all the Dodd-Frank rules yeah. and bankers and traders working together and things like that are no, so long, no, really not permitted anymore. But we were able to collapse that old CLO and issue a new CLO off of that same portfolio. For us, we made a profit buying up the old deal. And then we made a, back then bankers made two points creating deals in the old days. Now they make 10 basis points. And the collateral manager got a higher fee, actually, and longer asset, longer runway. So it ended up really, and the investors who sold got liquidity for a security. You know, they obviously chose to sell, and new investors got to invest. So it truly was a, you know, everyone kind of got what they wanted, but it was the first time we think anyone really ever went out and built up a position in a CLO with the goal of liquidating it. And in our case, the added goal of creating right. a new, new, new transaction. And when you, when you think about that, right, what you just said there, which is something which is also interesting, unique in a lot of ways to the CLO market, that there in one desk, you have a secondary trade. You get a primary issuance in that. And of course, in between- a warehouse as well. Right, there's a warehouse, right, for the financing. And then you have effectively liability management, right? If you think about the 90s and 2000s, you know, there were teams of corporate markets teams that were doing all those pieces. But in our market, it's usually the same couple of people who are doing all of those roles. Yes, and we put it all together in a way that really hadn't been done before. But we thought about the use of the equity rights in a way that no one had ever thought of before. Pretty quickly, Lehman figured this out, Bear figured it out, a few other people started buying up, and um, there was a big bewick of debt, I remember, from a European investor, and one thing led to another, and all of a sudden, there became trading. The CLO trader hired a junior person. Or brought that's right, in. Yeah. That's, that's how I started in the business as well, as, as that junior mm -hmm. trader in that wave. And back then, uh, as you remember, the trading desks were nice appendages to the new issue machine to support that business. Obviously, over time, that evolved. Mm -hmm. And that leads us to your next uh, pit stop in your illustrious career. Uh, uh, <laughs> I've been to one too many places, shall we say. But uh, um, with the uh, Chase J.P. Morgan merger going on, lots of uncertainty, lots of things mm. changing there. And I was given the opportunity to take a position at Bear Stearns, literally right across the street on the same floor. I could see my old office from my new office and joined the team at Bear, which was a really a great team. I'm still friends with many of the folks from there. A little different culture, certainly, than J.P. Morgan, for sure. Uh, J.P. Morgan, you had to get approval to ask for a meeting. Yeah. At Bear, people were thrilled that you could get a meeting, frankly, but it was a great team, and we'd turn up. And whereas it was always easy to get the meeting from JPM, at Bear, it was a little tougher, but once you got the meeting, you always got the deal. You came in, you knew the people, you knew the right way. They knew you were serious. They knew you were going to get stuff done. And Bear wanted to turn up the refinancing business and, frankly, the collateral managers that I had been doing business with, what, mm -hmm. what is now Reset, yeah. back then we called mm -hmm. refinancing. We knew a lot of issuers that they weren't necessarily close with. So it was a, it was a great, great opportunity to, to kind of build things and and. For me, the first time I was able to get things done, maybe not just because I had a fancy business card. Not that Bear wasn't <laughs> fancy, but certainly not at that. Maybe yeah. at the JPM level, and and that was a a great a great place. Uh, out of the blue, about a little less than two years later, I got a call to be the head of the CLO business at Merrill. Merrill at the time was the number one player, certainly in CDOs, probably maybe even double the size of everyone else in the market. And they had tried CLOs a couple of times, but really hadn't gotten traction on it. Good folks in there, but whatever reason, it just didn't hadn't happened previously. 
and they they gave me a call and said we'd like you to to lead up this this platform for us and it was such a good opportunity it, yeah. was, it was it was sad to leave leave bear but it was uh, i should have been fired if i didn't take the job <laughs> um, and i joined Merrill and literally turned up the day after thanksgiving 2006 or the monday after i remember they announced the first franklin mortgage acquisition wow. that day for you know billions i don't know how many billions of dollars and Merrill was a great place to be, kind of worldwide reach and prestige that J.P. Morgan had, but the ability to make quick decisions like Bear had. So it was a great mix, and of, of all the places, it was by far the most nimble that I worked at, but where you could get any meeting you wanted because you were calling from Merrill Lynch. And we built up the business very quickly, lots of demand. The loan desk was very supportive. Folks, you know, Brian Callahan and Graham Goldsmith, very, very good partners in, in the business. Sadly, mortgages didn't work out quite as well as, as everyone had hoped. And as we were ramping up and had know, between 15 and 20 warehouses open, getting deals done, everything else around us started, started to, to crumble. I feel like there's a bit of a Darwinism to structured products that as we went through the financial crisis, right, CLOs, of course, emerged as the, you know, surviving asset class and became much bigger. Obviously, CDOs trapped some of those, you know, pre-crisis inventions just disappeared. Um, and so you had Merrill, and that probably takes us to the financial crisis at this point. It does, yes. I remember sitting at my desk chatting with an old colleague from Bear. Stock was down, was that fateful... The fateful day they were, were ultimately taken out. They were downgraded to A3P3, which you know, not a lot of people, I've never been, very rarely am I smarter than the equity markets, mm. but you've traded derivatives, been around them. Anyone rated A3P3 pr probably has to post the notional yep. of whatever derivative they're in. I was like, Bear was going to have to come up with trillions of dollars mm. tomorrow. The stock was down by half. Yeah. Obviously, it went down the rest yeah. of the way. The equity market didn't realize the significance of a, of a large trading house rated A3P3. The market just missed that. No one in their right mind should have bought that stock at $30 a share that day. Or no one who knew, no one who had ever traded a derivative certainly bought it that day. Yeah. Uh, so it was a, obviously a, a sad ending for Bear and in, into JP Morgan. Um, but it then, it quickly brought about the credit uncertainty, which the credit markets broke July, I mean, kind of July 2 of 2007, loans broke down two or two points, something like that. I remember that. We had the surprise Fed rate cut 75 basis points in case anyone's listening in Washington <laughs> uh, back in August of 2007, mm -hmm. trying to correct, mm -hmm. correct things. And I remember back in, this is before the bank started failing, in August of 2007, we started liquidating our warehouses and loans were up two points, I remember that day. Yep. And we uh, we began to uh, unwind our positions. And by the time the bad stuff happened in Q1, Q2 of 2008, we were largely out of our risk. And from there, obviously the, my value of a CLO collateral manager Rolodex had diminished significantly. It used to be something that could create a lot yep. of money. Now it's maybe certainly not an asset the opportunity to join one of my longtime investors, a big Australian money manager, mm. came to be. They had been looking to expand into the United States, opened an office conveniently in Stanford, Connecticut, uh, just around the corner from where my house was at the time, and I, I moved over to the buy side. And it was a group 
that I knew from well from CLO investing, and they had built up a nice portfolio of CLO securities. One or two CDOs as well snuck in, but by and large, it was CLOs, all cash flow CLOs, and thankfully, a lot of them were ones I had cooked over the years, so I knew the portfolio well. And they wanted local people as well as people from Australia yeah. on the grounds here, so it made total sense. And it was a, a great place to work. Australia uh, modeled a pension system after Chile, which is they call a superannuation system. Mm. In, in American speak, we'd call it mandatory 401k. Yeah. And back in those days, 9% of all wages are mandatorily contributed to these defined mm -hmm. contribution pension plans. So as a money manager, by operation of law, you're opening the mail every month and there's new money coming yeah. in. So it was, uh, whereas if you're at a hedge fund, some, some did tremendously well in 2008, nine and 10, others ended in flames and you know, probably not a lot in between in the United States. For Australia, it was a great time to be investing internationally. The money kept flowing in mandatorily and we were able to buy things at very, very attractive levels beyond just being in structured products. We had other direct credit investments. We had an infrastructure equity portfolio in the United States. And it was interesting. One of the assets we owned, or we had a large interest in, was Icon Parking, mm. the equity of that, which is one of the largest parking operators in New York City at that point. We had about 20 or 210 garages, all but one in Manhattan, one in Brooklyn, and they considered the Brooklyn one out of town. It was, was the way that, that management team, which was a great team, thought about it. And you think essential infrastructure, safe, secure. Certainly, they have an irreplaceable footprint of garages in Manhattan. But if bankers aren't getting bonuses, which was the case then, yeah. they're not renewing their leases on their BMWs. And if you don't need your car, you're not going to park. Mm. You cancel your space. And what we ended up seeing with a lot of infrastructure was that it was far more elastic than the perhaps we anticipated. And in 2009, our CLO equity portfolio outperformed our infrastructure equity portfolio. Wow. And I started looking at this, and, like, and we kept involved in the CLO. It was interesting to get involved in other things, frankly. We were lending money to other infrastructure projects, but watching what was happening, well, in some cases, a gas-fired power plant with a fixed-price PPA is working yeah. fine. A lot of the infrastructure businesses were far more elastic. So while it was interesting, and it's great to have pictures on the wall of your, your portfolio, you can't put CLO offering memos up on the wall. It was, a, it was a great spot to be and a great way to learn and own CLOs through a distress cycle, but also be involved in other investments and see that the CLOs really kept paying off, which was remarkable. Um, my friends from Bear, as Bear was winding down, a team from RBS left to go to Jefferies, mm. maybe coincidentally the week that Bear was winding down. And RBS became Royal Bear Stearns. Yep. And quite a few folks uh, from the business just <laughs> packed up and moved to the uh, second largest trading floor in the I world. I never heard that one before. Uh, <laughs> either really Bear Stearns or Royal <laughs> Bear Stearns were the two ways we, uh, two ways we called it. Yeah. Um, but it was uh, certainly a bear-dominated desk. And it was, it was, again, stayed very good friends with the, with the team there. They uh, were nice enough to call me up out of the blue and say, hey, we've got a really big secondary business. And this goes to the point, the opposite of the point you made and the, maybe the evolution of the market, where in most cases, the secondary business is there to support the primary business. And if you talk to the people who do prime auto ABS, 
they got to make a market in their bonds. That's right. It'd be an insult to trade them not with the underwriter. You have to support. That's what it was. We were supporting our insurance exactly. businesses. So Bear, Bear Stearns, RBS, called me up and said, we'd like to create a primary business to support our secondary business. We're so big in secondary. We're making tons of money. We, uh, we just need to be in the new deal flow. Yeah. We'd like you to make money, but even if you just break even, we just the we would value being a new issue player because we're starting to see CLOs get created again. So it was a kind of a backwards thing from what would have happened ten or fifteen years ago, or even five years prior. But I joined to create a a, a new issue a new issue platform. And this there. was the now the period where we're coming out of the crisis. Uh, to your point, I remember those days vividly, and then we're seeing incredible turnover uh, in risk transfer from a lot of distressed portfolios in the crisis to, uh, to new people. So you were part of that, obviously, wave through um, Royal Bestens <laughs> to, uh, to, uh, to move around that risk. Okay, so you are uh, back on the sell side, but I imagine you still had the itch to scratch on uh, investing, you got a little bit of a taste. So absolutely, uh, how did that happen? So my first day on the job at RVS, yeah. a, a fellow who ran the loan desk, who I had just met that day, called me up and said, hey, I've got a meeting with a private equity firm over in Greenwich this mm -hmm. afternoon to talk about CLOs, you should come. Great, and private equity was certainly looking at CLOs in any number of ways at that point. Great idea, and I'm, my calendar happened to be free, it was my first day on the job. So I went over, and but one piece we didn't mention, the original catalyst of the discussion with the Australians as I was leaving Merrill was to create a listed fund that we could list on the Austra the ASX, the Australian Stock Exchange, that would own CLOs. And you may remember a firm called Basis Capital. I'm sure you did I a trade or two well. with them. That was sold retail in Australia, and they raised probably over a billion dollars. And yeah. at that point, a significant amount of the Australian Stock Exchange were externally managed funds. Yeah. And my view was, let's create a portfolio of these CLOs, let's list them on the ASX. Yeah. Probably the right, right idea, the wrong timing in 2008. Um, so we never got that part of the plan done. I, I missed that. But that was the original catalyst for the discussion with them. That said, this private equity firm was interested in a stone point, happened to be their name. I'll, I'll reveal that. Uh, the, uh, they were interested in creating a business around investing in CLO equity. Mm. And I hadn't really been focused on my business plan from 2008, but I said, I also have a very strong interest in creating a... Uh, a business uh, around investing in CLO equity. And one of the things that makes Stone Point unique, uh, they're a private equity firm, their last fund is you know, $9 billion or some gigantic number. If you talk to most people in the private equity world, there's two things they don't do. They don't invest in startups mm -hmm. and they don't put their money in securities. Mm -hmm. They would say the average private equity sponsor, our LPs want us to buy companies and buy businesses and grow them and optimize them. I think Stone Points realize their LPs want them to make a lot of money. Yeah. Really, any way you can do it <laughs> is, is, is a good way. And as we talked, I could see they were they had been studying the market for a while. They wanted to create a business around investing in CLO securities, and they thought that might be the highest point in the value chain, mm -hmm. sort of the private equity yeah. in the credit markets. Mm -hmm. And as I was doing diligence on them, it became clear to me they had actually backed 29 other new companies prior to Eagle Point. So we were, I believe we were company 30. I might be off one or two on my count. But they had a track record of creating new businesses. And they also understood CLOs, and they were truly fascinated with why did substantially all of these work? 
And when we were talking about it, they have a very senior, august team of senior executives, you know, at the top levels of finance. I said to them, well, we borrow at a low rate and we lend at a high rate, kind of banking 101. That's what every bank since, you know, since the ancient times has always done. But we CLOs do what no bank has ever figured out. We borrow on a long-term basis and lend on a short-term basis. And along the way, the marks don't matter. And I remember their chairman kind of put his hand on the table. That's how it all worked. Incredible. And he left the room. And their investment committee then grilled me. We had been talking for months and months at this point. Their investment committee still grilled me for another hour or two. It might have just been for sport at that point. I I think the decision was made. Um, But very shortly thereafter, we shook hands on a two-page term sheet. And I've never looked at that term sheet since. And I don't think they have either. Well, we have thick legal documents that cover everything. So when when was the first day of uh, Eagle Point? September 18, 2012. Wow. Right around Hurricane Sandy. Um, Maybe it was a day or two before or after, something like that. And we got going. It was me in a room. Sounds very familiar. Yes, you know that very well. (laughs) Didn't have a Bloomberg yet. It was not even two guys in a Bloomberg. It was one guy without a Bloomberg. What do you know? Everyone on the street was our best friend. We announced we had a, a significant pool of capital, a quarter billion dollars which at the time was the largest amount of money ever committed to CLO equity, to the best of my knowledge. And we began building out a team. Uh, one of my old colleagues from Merrill Lynch, um, a fellow Dan Coe, joined us as our, as our first partner, still with us today. This is only Dan's second job. Um, I remember when we were doing the layoffs at Merrill, you know, you know don't come in today, <laughs> you don't want to watch out, HR is coming. He was able to stay through to the B of A merger, did very, very well, and actually looked after their super senior book that B of A had built. So he had also had the similar experience that I had of dealing with owning senior risk and structured products. That was during a deep time in the market. And the two of us together and another partner who had worked with at JP Morgan, a fellow Dan Spinner, who had been more on the asset management banking side, but actually been involved in the creation of a CLO manager or two over the years. We came together and formed the original team that that's now Eagle Point today. And I, look, in any business, no matter how great fanfare you start with, there are always challenges. What were some of those early challenges? So the number one thing people challenged us on, you can see in our public filings, we invest in lots of Blackstone CLOs. It's not a secret. It was GSO at the time. They're a great team. Blackstone would never give you control in a CLO. Mm-hmm. That's impossible. No way. They would never part with that. What I secretly knew is all of these private equity firms, all of the CLO, nearly all CLO collateral managers view this as an asset management business, not a let's put all the partners capital in it sort of business. And when we started meeting with investors, that was the number one thing. People would say to us, you'll never be able to build a good portfolio. By definition, if you want control, you'll only get the worst Mm. investments. I think we've proven them wrong at this point a decade later. We, we today have majority interests in well over 100 different CLOs. We've probably bought 150 majority positions over the years. We don't get that question anymore. But that really was the leading question that we got from investors, that, that we would have an adverse selection because we wanted to be the majority investor. And I knew in my heart that wasn't the case. And the same people we do business with at Eagle Point are the same people I do business with when I was with the Australians, the same people from Merrill and Bear and J.P. Morgan, the, the whole way back. It's, it's, we're not calling up new and introducing ourselves. We're longstanding partners. And today, in many cases, with some of the largest CLO managers that we invest with, 
We're their largest single investor, typically representing 20 to 30% of their CLO AUM. And one of the things, as you're building your team, I really admire about the way you do business is you end up hiring one of my protégés. And I very much appreciate Dan calling me and saying, Brian, I'm going to steal one of your children. <laughs> and, you know, it's been, uh, it's been incredible to see you guys have put an incredible team together to, uh, to chase this opportunity. Thank you. No, we're, we're very, very proud of the team. Um, that individual now has two children themselves, just to, to bring things. That makes you a grandfather yeah, then, I guess, right. indirectly. <laughs> but uh, uh, that individual still with us today. As I look back at our investment team within Eagle Point, when we had been the investors and owners of Marble Point over the years, we've only had a handful of people ever leave our investment team. And every one of them, which is a very limited number, over north of a decade has been maybe if we suggested it was time to go back to business school or maybe this industry wasn't the right one. Overwhelmingly, no one's ever quit our investment team, period. And we try and get the right people in the right seats and let them do their thing. Obviously, appropriate supervision and controls, but we, we get the right horses and the right jockeys and let, and let them run. That individual that, that you mentioned leads up or co-leads our secondary debt trading team, and we trade you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions, every single year. That's a very meaningful business for us. And uh, that part of the team was ranked in Credit Flux recently as a top junior debt investor by a comfortable margin. Notably, we came in third for top for a senior wow. investor, which we were even a little, little surprised on. But um, that team is certainly well regarded by the street. We also created new positions. One of the things that's been emulated by others, well, we created a legal position mm -hmm. on the desk in that the legal documents in a CLO, unlike most other securitizations, are even today still heavily, heavily negotiated. Mm -hmm. And getting that right, catching every detail, being on the forefront of technology in the documents is so important. And several of our competitors, at a minimum, maybe many, have created similar roles over time. But the person we hired, similarly, we called the head partner at the law firm. By the way, we're gonna be making an offer. When we checked references, even though we knew the person who had been our external counsel, the people we called said, oh, darn it, we should have hired him. That's a great idea. So that's a, that's a good thing. Um, that individual's with us as well. We were just mm -hmm. completing performance reviews the other day, and a lot of people nine, 10 years with the firm, which is something I'm very proud of. In the last decade, yeah. never lost a partner, never lost a direct report to me. And from our investment team, any departure has been kind of at the company's behest, not at the behest of the individual. One constant theme, Tom, in your story is you always do things differently from, you know, being the guy who is knee deep in Lotus one, two, three, when nobody else was doing it, bringing the legal function into the desk, which again, you're right, people don't do this, buying control equity, right? Where does this maverick streak come from? Maverick is a very, <laughs> very uh, bold word. <laughs> Just thinking about things a little differently. Yeah. At the end of the day, value is created if you can translate between two markets. Mm -hmm. you know, investment managers translate between pensions who the investment committee meets once a quarter and they want to buy partnership interests with folks in your old seat who want to buy and sell securities in 30 seconds on a Bloomberg. Talk about electronification yeah. of our market shortly. You still do pick up the phone and chat and who won the Jets game this weekend and all these <laughs> other things. And I'll take $5 million yeah. of. Five million of that, uh, you know, XYZ 23-1 deal. It's, it's still a little antiquated. 
but it was always kind of looking at things a little differently. Mm. I don't know if I would use such a word as maverick, but challenging and asking why. Yeah. So young children often ask yeah. why, why, why? And it's something why I might not, I try not to do it so incessantly. I, I think about it to myself. And when we look at each thing, and I think this is something we see in our team, the kind of intellectual curiosity to look up and down the value curve. Why is this happening? How can yeah. we do it better? Or what will we need differently over time? And I look for that in the people we bring in. I had a former boss and mentor who would like to say, stay foolish. I think it was quoting someone else, uh, more famous. <laughs> but uh, that's that's the point that, you know, you have to stay, you have to stay curious and want to uh, always be learning. So Tom, now you have seen this market, this asset class evolve. You just said we're now a trillion dollar uh, CLO market. We are one and a half trillion dollar loan market. That's substantial growth. As you think about where we are today, you think about innovations, and I know you are very much at the center of innovation. How do you think about opportunity in this new landscape? Well, one of the things we look at, you know, the, the loan and CLO markets are probably some of the largest markets not to be electronified or automated. Certainly investment-grade bonds, government bonds, things like that, you know, they're all just traded on screens and sometimes not even by people, just by, by computers and certainly stocks in many cases. When I look at where we are, the size and scale of our market is vast, a trillion-dollar market supporting millions of jobs in the United States and around the world, if you count the European CLOs. Yet it's still an antiquated, the, the way bonds trade in our market probably looks like a high yield or even an investment grade bond desk might have looked in the 1980s. Yep. And it's, a, it's an inefficient process, the BWIC process for secondary, the amount of time spent across the street. Every, you send out a list to 30 of your favorite dealers. Everyone looks at them. The junior analyst gets them, has to stay up all night and probably run the numbers. Hopefully they're using systems that make it a little mm. better now. Chit chat, is their bids are due at 11 o'clock. Okay, we'll send our bids in at one o'clock. The PM who put out the BWIC is in a meeting and unavailable for two hours. All this silliness and everyone's working on it. Yep. Assuming there's five to 10 credible bidders for a given security coming through different dealers. The dealers are gonna make a tiny bit of money relative to the amount of phone calls they make. They're probably not even making a dollar per phone call. I, I, I hate to say it. Yeah. Uh, I watch the phone volume on the, the phones light up on when we're running a BWIC. It's, it's, it's absurd the amount of effort and inefficiency we have. Um, on one hand, CLOs are pretty similar, but there's a lot of little nuances in the, mm -hmm. in the weeds in the documents. And we, we spend a lot of time with our desk lawyer creating those, frankly, and that knowledge helps us trading the CLOs, both equity and debt. At the same time, the lack of standardization, the fact that the principal balance is a negotiated definition uh, is something that gives pause, uh, is a hindrance to the market, as well as the fact that in many cases there's very few holders of an individual QCIP. Mm -hmm. In some cases, there's only one. Yeah. To be listed on the New York Stock Exchange, you need to have 400 shareholders of 100 shares or more. Interesting. I remember that from a Series 7 way back when. <laughs> and it's it's a relevant measure, but you put 400 people in a room, there's going to be at least one buyer and one seller at a hopefully reasonable price. 
the average CLO QCIP has between one and five holders. There's probably a few, there's exceptions to the high side, no one on the low side. But if you don't have a large population of people who know a security and are willing to trade it, there are some challenges. Loans typically have more holders yep. and certainly the larger loans. But even there, while we're not quite using fax machines as much anymore in that loan market, in many cases still needing the borrower to consent yep. and the agent bank to consent and these processes that, that are still quite antiquated going back to when loans were made by banks and held by banks and you called up your banker if you needed to talk about your loan, still hinder some of the market. The loan market certainly has, is making more progress than the CLO market in terms of automation and electronic trading. And I'm, you're obviously at the forefront of that here. Uh, the CLO market faces the hindrance certainly at the bottom of the stack and even at yeah. the top with, with not a lot of holders of any individual QCIP and how that impacts the market over time. We know the trend, mm -hmm. but I think it, it's, it's, it's a tricky one. So, Tom, you were talking about the inefficiencies in the market, and this harkens me back to my experience at Haverford. I didn't pay attention to a lot of classes, but I still remember one economics class where the theme was around the economic concept of such cost the cost it takes people to find the goods they want in a particular market. And I believe that's what you're describing, the incredible search cost that uh, tranche investors have to spend to find each other, the other side of the trade, you know, for the reason that you mentioned, right, that there's certain idiosyncrasy uniqueness to our market, one, that it's a limited holding, and you, we have these auctions. This is, you know, the best way we figure out how to find each other right, to get transactions done. And it certainly hasn't helped that we have trebled the market in the last 10 years. It's much bigger. There's a, there are more QCIPs. There's more stuff to trade, effectively. There's more stuff to sift through. And the, uh, not to uh, plug in Octora, but really the, the challenge that I saw in the business is, again, trying to make it much more effective to find one another. And ushering a new era in the market and, you know, hopefully significantly more growth as people can trade and find each other and, and get the market to be a much bigger size. So how do you see yourselves being able to participate and actually help to grow the market in a more innovative way? You know, we, we definitely want to see the market expand, improved liquidity, tighter bid asks, tighter or more efficient execution, probably that last one leads, <laughs> will we'll, we'll drive yep. all the others. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we want to see all of that happen. We've thought about ways of, should we back someone and be a market maker, a behind the scenes market maker for something? We've never done anything like that, yeah. but do how do we convert people from thinking one way, there's hundreds of people who spend inordinate amounts yeah. of their days doing something one way, how do we convert them to look at a screen and accept that and not be worried they're getting picked off, not be worried that there's some, they're buying a bond too high, there's yeah. some snake in the grass they're missing. And for better or worse, CLO securities don't appear on trace, so you never know for sure. <laughs> we have a pretty good idea 99% yeah. of the time, but I'm sure there's a few, a few trades yeah. that, that we don't know. 
the transparency is both a, a friend and foe mm. to any individual investor. Um, it's probably unambiguously a friend to the market, however. Mm. And on one hand, we're conf torn. We like the inefficiency mm -hmm. to some regard and the opacity helps us add value for our clients every day. Against that, the market will be better off, and we're all better off as we get to a more liquid and more orderly market. Imagine the stock exchange was still yeah. where people were standing there putting their hand one way or the other to buy and sell in an open outcry. Now the stock exchange is merely a museum. Yeah. The CLO market is still using the old floor. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're, we're working towards getting there. And the market will be better when it can trade more simply, more with more time on computers and less time on the phone or in Bloomberg chat. And you know, the other thing also, to that point, that I know you have certainly benefited from is being an early mover for new trends. And suddenly, Eagle Point coming into existence and being a dedicated equity investing shop, that was a huge early move. And I certainly commend you for that. And you know, I know that as the market evolves now, you guys are going to be a great, well-positioned to take advantage of uh, whatever comes next, this new version of the market, and the opportunities that come with that. So I'm, I'm rooting for Eagle Point. <laughs> well, we're rooting for you and what you've done for the market. And the combination of bringing both loans and CLOs into a similar trading environment makes a ton of sense. One of the things I think most banks do very poorly in most cases, not all, secondary trading is separate from new issue yeah. in their reporting lines and CLOs. And often it's to the credit business for secondary, for primary, and to the structured desk for secondary. That's probably the only product like that where, where these things are not related. Now, it's because banks have, in many cases, such Ooh. large credit apparatus. But in many cases, the people on the other side of the line, the buyers, might also be the person involved in managing a CLO might also be the person investing in CLOs, or if not, they sit right next to each other. And getting that connectivity on one platform, which banks can't even, in many cases, get primary and secondary CLOs in one platform, getting loans and CLOs together makes a ton of sense. There are challenges, and you face them every single day as, as you look at both the loan market and its inefficiencies and the CLO market and its inefficiencies, but getting got to break the break the ice someone's got to do the first they trade to, before you get the second like, that's right and look you know back to your point about you know early in the day about pricing and the nav of uh, of a seal of vehicle taking 3 days that's why we're putting this together because we see loan market seal of market as both sides of the same coin and it makes sense for them to coexist so as you look back to your career you know the different things that you've done and you reflect and say, gee, I could have done that differently. What would you have done differently? This might even be pre-career. Mm -hmm. I wonder how things would have turned out had I planned for college better. Mm. In that, that really was a, <laughs> yeah. obviously a, light, a very, very, very important yeah. decision. I encourage all listeners, obviously, to think carefully about this. I made the decision in the course of a week without a lot of diligence as to where I'd be going. <laughs> Without a lot of inquiry. Yeah. I, I, and one of the things I look at, while I'm a state school kid, 
you know, quite a few of the folks we work with have much more you know, august degrees. And I look at the alumni connectivity, the professor connectivity. While I have many good friends from my, my college days, yeah. the level of connection that this, even just the school fosters is, while they try hard and I support yeah. them, is, is perhaps maybe I could have found more folks who would go into banking and finance versus just accounting. I think it turned out just fine. You, I think you're being too hard on yourself. And if it's any consolation, I'll tell you. For me, you know, the college choice, there are a kid in Zimbabwe who had never left the country and took a chance to go to Pennsylvania, which I had no idea where it was. So, yes, I could have been a little more diligent, I suppose, in, uh, in that selection. You picked a slightly better school than I did. <laughs> I, I locked into a, you know. Uh, I think they uh, refunded my application fee, <laughs> if memory serves. And you're right, of course, you know, the funding helps. So um, when you look back to Tom at Arthur Anderson, Big Six, Tom knee deep in a lot of spreadsheet, what would you tell him today? Keep asking why. <laughs> Work harder. Over and all-nighters were a thing back then. I get tired at work if I'm at 8 or 9 o'clock these days. Uh, certainly plenty of 3, 4 a.m. nights. The bankers would call you up Tuesday, you know, Tuesday at 4 p.m. We're trying to price this deal tomorrow. We're going to need your letter. Okay. Cancel your plan. Spend all night. But as a, as a young worker, there, there was, well, there's some degree of balance needed in life. There's no concept of protected Saturdays and woke and... Uh, things like that. It was just work hard and get your stuff done and you'll move up very quickly. Very much Anderson was uh, uh, very much a meritocracy. And that is something that sometimes I think gets lost in, in some of the world today. Maybe it was the CEO of Cantor said, if you don't want to work hard and late nights, you probably shouldn't be an analyst here. Yep. And while we definitely do not have a FaceTime quota of having to, because the boss is here, you've got yeah. to be here at Eagle Point. I think that certainly was prevalent on Wall Street for a period of time. Yes. At Anderson, we didn't have that sort of thing, but we'd get the calls for the late night work on short notice, and I'd work harder, and I'd, put my, in hindsight, put your hand up and ask for even more responsibility. Mm. When you're young and you have that energy, the amount of experience you can gain. The other thing I thought about and I didn't do, and I wish I did, Anderson was pretty good about giving you international assignments. Mm. I remember giving thought to either asking to work in Hong Kong or London for a period of time. Yeah. Again, younger, no you know, family to support and things like that. It's a little easier to make those kind of moves. Who knows what would have happened had I, had I done such a thing like that. I wish I had some international experience. It'd be great to have lived in London for six months or a year, mm -hmm. both for just the cultural benefits and the additional market depth of yeah. knowledge that I'd have and connections that I would have had in those markets. Today we do very little in Europe. We have, mm -hmm. well, we know some of the folks there. Not a, not a ton of not a ton of connectivity <laughs> yet. Tom, I very much appreciate you making time for me uh, today. It's been uh, a great pleasure talking to you and hearing your story. Brian, no, it's it's a pleasure getting to chat with you. What what's going on here, Doctor? Is very exciting. It has the potential, and it seems like it is changing the way the market behaves. We've got a lot more to go, I think. It's, you're right. in very early. This is probably the 1998 of calculating CLO NAVs. Right. But you're at the forefront of a trend that's happening in all other markets. 
and the work you're doing, getting a syndicate of banks to yeah. back you while you were working at a bank, no less, a Herculean task, and uh, we're, we're pleased to be involved and, and, and see this move forward. I'm going to have to bring you back to talk about that, you know, how uh, you get seven banks in the room and uh, do something. But uh, Tom, again, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for listening today. For more conversations like these, subscribe to The Ramp Up wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you next time.